It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I hope this Sunday morning your family is safe, healthy, and well during such a difficult time. When is the last time you got something in the mail? It was probably yesterday or earlier this week, right? And if you're like me, this quarantine situation has you ordering more things, and most of it is coming to the house via the United States Postal Service. Well, this morning we're going to take a break from discussing the minutiae and the details of the current pandemic, and we're going to talk about saving the post office. Coming up to the front of the class is Mac Julian, who has been a letter carrier for nearly 20 years or over 20 years, actually. He's president of Local 11, the Chicago branch of the National Association of Letter Carriers. And he also serves as a trustee on the National Board of Trustees for the National Association for the Union. Um, He joined us for this conversation because I wanted someone who actually carries our letters um, and delivers our mail to put in context for us what do we mean when we talk about saving the post office what are we saving it from all right we're going ahead on recording so go ahead and start mark thank you so very much for joining us on sunday civics welcome to the show Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. So as we do with every guest who joins us for the first time, tell us the story of your first civic action. Wow. Uh, There's been a few. uh, My first or most memorable one, I think, is related to what we're talking about today, and that's the Postal Service. Uh, I was recently, uh, at this time, recently elected in a leadership role here in Chicago, uh, the Chicago letter carriers. And we were doing a rally to save the postal service. And it was a combination of not just letter carriers, but clerks, it's all postal workers. And we planned this rally downtown Chicago. And we was just, you know, we weren't sure whether a lot of our members were going to come out because you know, it's like never really a good day to have a rally or a protest if you're a postal worker because it's like we're always working unless it's a Sunday. And this was the middle of a week and we put the word out and some of the carriers, you know, they actually took it upon themselves. They rented the buses, they left their station and they just all converged on downtown Chicago and what. Uh, other labor leaders out there to support us. And we really filled up the the Thompson Center in Chicago, Uh, over a thousand postal workers out there uh, in the middle of a work week, uh, advocating for, you know, saving the postal service. I believe at that time, uh, they were only looking at eliminating some days of delivery uh, and and possibly changing some of the mode of delivery uh, going to, cluster boxes on the corners or some other nonsense 
And but it, it really resonated within our membership and they came out and, and it was uh it was a quite a memorable rally. That's really uh, that's a really great story. And actually, like you said, it ties directly into our conversation this morning, um, because yeah. as you mentioned, it was another rally to save the post office. I remember, you know, a couple of decades old. I remember a lot of protests and campaigns about saving the post office. Why does it seem to be so so many of them? Why are we always trying to save the post office? I, you know, there's this misperception that the um, overall that the post office is a relic of the past, uh, that is losing money, that no one relies on the postal service anyway, anymore. The internet has come along and there's, uh, uh, people are emailing. So there's no longer this need for uh, your mailman or mail lady, uh, as you would have it. But, uh, all of that is simply not true. You have to realize that the postal service in and of itself, uh, generates a massive amount of revenue annually, um, roughly over $65 billion of revenue is generated by the Postal Service. So there are, uh, there are those who would like to see this big entity privatized. Uh, they would like to split up this pie and they will make a lot more money off of what uh, the Postal Service is doing right now because people have come to rely on the Postal Service. Uh, in ways that we kind of take for granted. Um, and so if you were to privatize the Postal Service, uh, which is providing universal service at a flat rate uh, across the country, whether you're in rural America or urban America, uh, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, that the, the, the amount of postage is the same. Uh, and in that sense, it, it truly binds this nation together. Um, the urban, some of your, your inner city urban areas will be left out. Your rural areas would definitely be left out because it will cost more, uh, to deliver to those areas. And, you know, right now you have, um, UPS and FedEx who, who uses the postal service, uh, if you will, as a leg, last leg of delivery, last mile delivery, we call it. Uh, because quite simply, it's just not profitable for them to go to those addresses. Uh, the United States Postal Service services 160 million addresses a day. Uh, you know, literally, by way of your letter carrier, the federal government makes a visit to every home every day uh, of the week, six days a week. Mm. You know, I, I want to unpack some of the things here because I, re you know, I remember learning about the different aspects of the post office. And I don't think most people really grasp just what you said, um, that there are some limitations and differences that the postal service is up against that others are not. One of the things that's frustrating to me is when people say, you know, it needs to be run like a, you know, a business uh, and it's just not profitable when there are lots of restrictions that these other private companies don't have, don't exist. Um, one, as you mentioned, is you have the same flat rates <laughs> going to no matter where you live in the country. If I wanted to send something FedEx to, you know, some random rural place um, or a hard to reach place, it's going to cost more money based upon that delivery, which is different from the postal service, correct? Absolutely. And I guess, you know, what you were making the point and what you just stated, Joy, 
uh, and that these private companies and what they charge. Let's really unpack it and take it all the way back. This, this is the United States Postal Service. This is a public entity, a public institution. It is the People's Post Office. Uh, this agency is written into, the only government agency written into the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 of the powers uh, that is provided Congress, one of them is to create post office and postal roads. So this is the People's Post Office. Um, in uh, Title 39 of the U.S. Code, uh, the mission of the Postal Service is to bind this nation together. Um, uh, Benjamin Franklin was the first postmaster of the old post office, United States Post Office, which pre which even preceded this country. So when you put it in that context and realize that it's the people's post office, that it is uh, providing a basic reliable service to every American, uh, it is actually um, something that is the right of every citizen of this country to have this post office, to have a postal service available to them. Uh, and with the uh, with the private companies, they are there to do what private companies do to make money. The postal the postal service is not uh, existing to turn a profit. Uh, it is it's self existing in that it does not require a government. Uh, it does not rely on government taxes uh, to run. Not a dime of government. Uh, not a dime of. Uh, a payroll tax goes into the United States Postal Service. Um, it is a almost a pay-as-you-go service, as you will, and we're talking literally 50 cent a stamp, but it is there for you, uh, everyday, reliable um, postal service. Yeah. Um, and then there are the other restrictions. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, having you on to uh, have a conversation about this point, because you've been a letter carrier now for what uh, you've uh, actually uh, worked in the field. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Over 20 years now. Over yes, 20 years. Yes. So, um, you know, one of the aspects that I learned is uh, about the financial constraint of the Postal Service. And it's because one uh, um of the laws or the barriers that exist uh, for the Postal Service is that it requires the Postal Service to pre-fund your retirement and health benefits for, what, a decade in advance? Yeah, yeah, it has, it has been over a decade. And, and realize the, the odd thing about it is when this uh, crazy law was put into place, um, uh, the intent was, uh, as they call it, postal reform at that time, uh, to allow the postal service to to be more profitable. And at this time, this was prior to the Great Recession, and, and mail volume was was much higher uh, than what it is today. And the postal service, even with this burden, this burden placed on upon the postal service to prefund retirees' health benefits, prefund it for the next 75 years. Wait, and wait, wait, wait. wait. So I know I said I wasn't going to interrupt you, but say that again. Pre-fund retirees' health benefits, future health benefits for the next 75 years. Not not current retirees, future retirees. Pre-fund future retirees for the next 75 years. And they had to do so within a 10-year window. So the Postal Service was mandated to pre-fund to the tune of five and a half billion dollars a year. 
future retirees. Now, as a future retiree, <laughs> I've always wanted to ask this question. You know, on the one hand, as an employee, you have to think, well, at least my retirement and my benefits will be there. But on the other hand, I, you know, tell me what you think about that. Well, on the other hand, no, we're just where you going. What about the now, right? You know, <laughs> is there going to be a retirement with this, with this, uh, or with this agency? Uh, because if you're doing everything that you can to bleed it dry, uh, uh, agency that, uh, again, on, on the one hand, you're saying, uh, it is no longer as relevant, uh, as it has been in the past. Uh, but then you're pre-funding, uh, into the future as if this is something that's going to be there. And, and of course we expect it and we want the postal service to, to be there moving forward. Um, but you know, it, it's, simply ludicrous that the burden that was placed on the postal service, no other government agency has such burden. No other private company would put that mandate on itself uh, to pre-fund to the extent that, you know, it uh, creates at the end of the day, a bottom line uh, that appears that, you know, that we're losing money. And then heading into the great recession when mail volume did indeed drop, um, and to have to pre-fund uh, meant that the Postal Service was reporting losses every year. But those losses were directly related to the mandate to pre-fund uh, at the tune of $5.5 billion a year. So they just have $5 you know, billion a year, you said times 75 years? No, um, for um, pre-fund retirees have benefits uh, that would stretch out over 75 years, but they had to pre-fund it within 10 years. Mm. So they that, were given a 10-year window to do the pre-funding. Uh, long story short, the Postal Service was not able to continue to make those payments mm-hmm. uh, and and run uh, the organization. Again, that's where you, know, you hear, well, the Postal Service is losing money. The Postal Service has posted another loss. Well, the loss was actually money that they were not paying, but it was reflected as a loss because it was money, you know, required by law that the Postal Service had to pay uh, to the government. Now, that's not that's a restriction. Again, if you're comparing the Postal Service to FedEx, UPS, Amazon or any of those that what that's a restriction that none of these entities are under. They are not operating in the same conditions. The additional issue I always wanted clarity on is whether or not the Postal Service has restrictions in terms of what they can sell at their uh, uh, at the 30,000 or 300,000 locations uh, across the country. So, um, you know, if you mentioned previously that the Postal Service operating and having a branch in places all across the country in rural areas and places um, that are not as populated but still need regular service. Um, if the Postal Service has a building you know, in that part of the area. And they would also want to say, let's say, open up a coffee stand inside the Postal Service that could help boost revenue. Could the Postal Service do that? No. Uh, (laughs) You know, there are restrictions placed upon the Postal Service, uh, you know, and and one of the things that uh, has been uh, or has been discussed uh, over the past few years was the possibility of the postal service getting back into the banking 
industry to serve the underbanked, um, to be able to do things, to uh, transfer money. There's a lot of things that the Postal Service can do with its vast network. You have to realize there is a post office located in every community, every zip code uh, in this country has its own post office. Uh, in rural America, I mean, the post office is the hub of the community. And as you pointed out, uh, it is uh, more profitable uh, in some areas than it is in others. You realize in this areas, take it like your Chicago or New York, uh, where you may have a large amount of, um, uh, of traffic or, or consumers util- utilizing the postal service with package goods and, and mailings and not so much in rural America, but that, you know, it, it is the more dense areas or the more profitable areas that subsidize the less profitable areas. That's what makes it a universal network. That's why you can charge the same amount to every citizen. But then again, it goes back to the fact that this is the people's post office. It's the people's postal service. So when we're talking about saving the post office, uh, you mentioned that there have been protests in the past, some of which when they were looking to reduce the level of service, uh, reduce the number of days of delivery. And that's even a conversation that's being discussed now uh, again um, or uh, saving the post office because this ridiculous thing of prefunding <laughs> um, uh, in, in that aspect. When, when we're, when we're when you say it right, when you say holistically save the post office, what do you mean? Okay, so right now, to be honest with you, you know some of those other things are something that we would like to achieve um, in, in a when everything clears up, when, when we're through this COVID crisis. Uh, right now, uh, I think we're we're just primarily focus on when we say save the postal service we're we're not getting into the political argument of uh you know whether the post the postal service should be able to provide other services or even the repealing uh the reform uh the postal reform act of 2006 what we're talking about is saving the post office during this crisis you know i i've, I've mentioned to a reporter last week if, if ever there was a time that the Postal Service actually proved its worth. Uh, It has been now uh, through this whole COVID-19 crisis. Uh, Someone asked me when this first started, you you know, with everything shutting down, they're gonna shut down the post office, they're gonna shut down the post office, they're gonna not deliver mail. I said, do you, if people will really go off the rails, (laughs) if if, if they stop mail service, Uh, because this is, um, you know, we're in a very foreign, uh, place right now as it is uh, with uh, a lot of uh, uh, closed uh, um, businesses closed and a lot of stores closed and really sheltering in place. Uh, something that we're not accustomed to. And then to think that we are not provided mail service. Uh, you know, we're made for t- such a time as this. Uh, especially when people are relying on package deliveries and you got to realize that there exists uh, among what we do every day, a large part of what we do uh, is provide prescription medicine to those who have their medicine delivered to them. Uh, so if ever there was a time that we, if we 
have shown how important we are to this country in terms of binding this nation together. Uh, it has been right now because uh, I tell you, uh, our many of our customers have shown uh, our members a lot of appreciation in, in the fact that the consistency uh, has a, uh, given a sense of normalcy uh, in their lives uh, in that they're still receiving mail uh, and they're re still receiving their package goods and they're still receiving their prescription medication. Um, you know, the Medicare, the post uh Postal worker is, is a staple uh, within many communities. And so um, I just can't imagine, uh, you know, us moving forward without the post office uh, in some form or fashion. But only thing that we're asking right now is that the Postal Service is given the same financial uh, assistance that other agencies or other private businesses have. Uh, you know, you look at the uh, coronavirus uh, aid, relief and uh, economic security, the CARES Act. Yep. Uh, when that was signed into law, the, the support uh, that was given to the airlines, you know, $61 billion of support to the airlines, private cargo shippers, $17 billion, other corporations, $425 billion, and literally nothing to the Postal Service, nothing that uh, that the post office can use right now to, to right its ship because uh, the, the reality of it is with all these people at home and, and, and not working and not creating mail, uh, the Postal Service, we we're starting to see a decline in mail volume. Where we have seen an increase in package delivery, uh, we simply can't rely upon uh, the, the package delivery to float this universal network, right? So um, so we likewise uh, uh, could use uh, an emergency appropriation. And, and if it was, it was one that was actually set aside for the Postal Service that was uh, uh, unfortunately stripped out of that bill and, and subsequent bills to follow. Uh, the 10 billion that was provided uh, to the Postal Service in forms in the form of a um, uh, a loan um, it com comes with strings attached to it and and we're asking that you know that we're be given the 25 billion uh, that we need in emergency appropriation to keep the Postal Service running uh, just as it was before the coronavirus uh, the, the COVID-19 uh, coronavirus crisis. Now, what else do, as you mentioned, I am very appreciative of so many of us are obviously at home, um, but we're also ordering <laughs> a lot of stuff as well. And so yeah, just I am too. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. Right. And so as you mentioned, you may be ordering something from and you think it's going to be shipped via UPS or FedEx. But as you mentioned, you know, those services also rely on the network and services of the Postal Service as well. And so it's also supporting, yes, your individual mail carrier who's still coming outside, um, who 
still showing up to work and delivering the mail. So as you mentioned, you can get your med. You know, I use the regular mail so that my grandmother can get her medication. I use the regular mail um, for uh, a communication back and forth with the foster care agency with me and, you know, our foster kids. Like those are vital services that uh, people still uh, need. And as you mentioned, if that went away, people not getting a check, not getting a medicine, not getting their information, um, that would be a whole um, a whole nother crisis we have to deal with. Um, but what do letter carriers need um, besides, as you mentioned, that support like other entities have uh, received, some of which are private enterprise, um, what else do the individual people who are still delivering our mail at this time need? Oh, well, I, I got to admit, uh, the Postal Service has been great uh, in providing the uh, personal protective equipment that we needed. You know, like other companies and other agencies, it was quite challenging at first to secure enough of this stuff for uh, for our members, for their employees. But the Postal Service has done a wonderful job uh, in providing those things and working with us to make sure uh, that uh, our members are working in a safe environment. Uh, is every post office a po- perfect environment? No. But I can honestly say that the Postal Service, uh, along with the, the unions, have been working together to make sure that uh, our members are given uh, the best uh, opportunity to work in a safe environment uh, on a daily basis. Uh, you, know, you have to realize, since this whole thing have, have started, um, postal workers, uh, as far as um, having to uh, come to work and, and go door to door amongst this virus. You know, we've been given uh, the choice to, you know, whether we want to use some leave and take the time off if, if our safety, if we felt our safety was in jeopardy, that we didn't have to go out and deliver. And the vast majority, the vast majority of our members have come to work uh uh, even with the challenge of having to secure babysitters because schools are out, it just shows the level of dedication uh, of our members uh, and, and to the mission uh, of delivering the mail. But I want to go back to another point you was making. It and you know, you look at the overall, the total impact no postal service would would have on this country. And I'm not just talking about the perspective of. Uh, people not being able to receive things uh, at a reasonable price, but the impact that it would have on the economy. The Postal Service is the center of a $1.6 trillion mailing industry. So we're talking about the jobs that are connected, just like you just mentioned with UPS and, and FedEx. You know, we deliver 25% of their goods. We deliver 25% of their goods. Wow. Uh, last mile delivery, right? So the impact that it would have, yeah, the prices would shoot up because they wouldn't have the postal service to uh, alleviate uh, or, or, you know, bear the burden of some of these deliveries that would be not cost effective to them. Uh, but that $1.6 trillion um, mailing industry, we're talking over 7 million workers across this country. The Postal Service employs over 600,000 employees. And we're just not talking any job. We're talking good federal government, middle-class American jobs. So now you take, pull all of that out of the equation. 
pull all of that out of the equation, the, the uh, equation, and you're talking about the impact that that would have on our society, realize, you know, we as postal workers, as like other middle-class Americans, we pay taxes, we buy houses, we, um, you know, we engage in, 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 in commerce. And so you take that out of the equation and that would be, it would really, it would really wreak havoc uh, on our economy. Well, thank you so very much, Mac, for uh, joining us and providing that context. As you, as I mentioned, um, quite often I uh, repeat, just like with any random fact, you know, um, it's like the post office can't sell you coffee so they can raise the money or the post office has to do this. And they're like, what? And, you know, and so the more that we can talk about this and um, educate not only uh, the general population, but some of our elected officials don't even know this information. Um, for them to be armed with that information on how they can support this institution, which we take for granted, um, as you mentioned, of the network that is available, um, that no other private enterprise, people like to say, let the market fix it, <laughs> let the you know market figure out the need. And it's like the market is not going to figure out a need for rural poor communities because if they did, they would have already done it. <laughs> and the only thing that yeah. they do right now is how can we build something to capitalize off them being poor, rural, and um, separate from everybody else. So um, thank you very much for joining us and providing that context. I do hope um, that we will be able to come back in a more victorious conversation and not in the consistent save the post office conversation. Uh, look, thank you as well. One last thought. I just you know, want your listeners to, to reach out to their elected officials, to their congressmen, particularly their senators, uh, to get the support that the Postal Service needs uh, to, to, to move forward. Um, the Postal Service, one fact I didn't mention was the Postal Service is the largest employer of veterans. And everyone is always um, talking about they appreciate the service uh, of our veterans. 25% of the Postal Service workforce is comprised of veterans. We are the largest civilian employer of, of veterans in this country. So, And not only that, a large portion of people of color as well. No, absolutely. Uh, 25%. I know we see uh, a, a, a large um, portion in the urban areas, but 25% of the workforce overall of the Postal Service are, are, are of color. That is true. Well, thank you very much again for joining us. And um, we will continue our advocacy and support of our letter carriers and the Postal Service. Have a good day. All right. You too. Thank you. Appreciate you. All the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Well, I have a special treat for our Sunday Civics listeners this morning. My U.S. Senator, the junior senator from the New York uh, from New York State, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, welcome to the show. 
Oh, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be on. So uh, before we begin uh, our conversation about the post office, I always have our guests, particularly for the first time, um, tell us a story about their first civic action, what got them involved, um, whether you were a young child writing a letter to save your library or not until you were older at a protest. So what's your story? So I grew up in upstate New York in Albany, and I had a grandmother who loved politics. Uh, she was a woman who never had the benefit of going to college, but she uh, worked every day of her life. She was a secretary in our state legislature, and she knew that her voice was important for some reason, and she knew no one paid attention to her, but they might pay attention to a lot of women. So she organized women uh, to get involved in campaigns, and she did it for about 50 years. So my first political experience when I was when I was about 10, and my grandmother took me to a campaign headquarters for her favorite candidate, and I met a bunch of women who were sitting there stuffing envelopes. And it was this moment when I realized that there was a whole world of activism out there that I didn't know much about, but I definitely wanted to be part of. And so that was my first campaign I got to work on. Uh, my grandmother had t-shirts made with the our candidate's logo. She asked us to wear them when we went to uh, the local state fair. Um, we also uh, had bumper stickers for our candidate, and my grandmother would send me into parking lots and tell me to put that bumper sticker on every car. <laughs> and I said to her, Grandma, really, every car? And she said, oh, yes, every car. So I would think I was vandalizing a bit young, but um, – <laughs> It was a lot of fun, and I, I just developed such a love for advocacy and for working on campaigns and for using uh, politics and public service as a way to help other people. And uh, she really just left this impression on me that, that what we do with our time really matters and that our voices really can impact things. And so I've always believed in our democracy because of her. Well, I love the stories about involving children early on. It makes me not feel so bad about um, using my godchildren and my foster kids uh, for NAACP service um, and for <laughs> and for campaigns that I'm supporting. So I um, I appreciate that validation um, to get young people involved early, even before they can vote, because they have a civic voice even before they have the right to vote. So um, that's a great oh thing. for sure yeah great and I and I do I do the same with my kids. Um, so one of the first bits of activism Theo and Henry did uh, is <clears throat> they really wanted to march at the gun, the gun march. Um, and so uh, the March for Our Lives. And so Henry and Theo spent the morning making really great signs for us to carry. And we marched on Washington. And that was one of the, I think, most interesting things I've done with my kids. My oldest uh, also marched, uh, my oldest boy Theo, he was one of his uh, friends who's a girl um, joined us and we did the women's march together uh, right wow. after Trump was elected. And uh, I think he was amazed at how many women uh, and families gathered in Washington for that march as well. So my kids have had the benefit of campaigning since they were little. Uh, my first campaign, um, Thea was three. And so I had him on my hip throughout that campaign trail, that first house race. And then my second house race, I was pregnant with Henry and had Henry in the middle of that race. Um, so they've been involved in politics and public life for a long time. 
and they'll be able to pinpoint and say, my first civic action was in my mother's belly. <laughs> <When I'm, laughs> exactly. They'll be able to pinpoint from there. So I, I want to get to this conversation about the post office. I've been yelling about this, and those uh, who have listened to the show for some time, we've teased a bit about um, some of the restraints that exist with the Postal Service as to the reason why they're in the predicament that they, the financial issue um, that they are facing at this particular time. We've talked about the investment that we as a country have invested in the Postal Service um, uh, over some time. But, I, you know, I really am supportive of the idea of the legislation that you introduced along with several of your colleagues, at least on the House side, Congresswoman Yvette Clark as well, about postal banking. Talk to us a bit about that idea. So most people, not most, many people in America are unbanked or underbanked, meaning they don't have access to a bank account, a checking account, they can't wire money, they can't even get small loans. And those people are forced into a predatory lending system that is the underbelly of a lot of our economy, um, either direct predatory lenders or even layaway programs that they're trying to buy a couch that costs $200. And by the time they finish their payments, they've paid $500 for that same couch. That's the reality for a lot of low-income families. It is really expensive to be poor in this country. So what postal banking is, is a very, very easy solution. Uh, we used to use our post offices in America, particularly during the Great Depression, as, as banks. And there's 30,000 post offices around the country in every community, in inner cities, in rural communities, in suburbs, literally every community. And so what those post offices can do is offer small dollar checking accounts, small dollar savings accounts, small dollar loans, transactional services, remittance services. And they would allow any person underbanked or unbanked to save, to have a savings account, to get small loans. They never have to use a predatory lender again. Uh, it makes a difference. They'd be able to um, have a place to go to deposit their paycheck, uh, to get cash, uh, and to be banked. It will allow them to save money and not be taken advantage of through predatory practices. That's really, really important because, as you mentioned, the number of people, the 7% of households unbanked. Um, and we live in a number, a lot of communities, it would be rural communities in terms of access, in terms of location. It's also, as you mentioned, it's something we say here on the show all the time, it's expensive to be poor, um, of all of the additional fees, all of the additional things that are taken out of the money that is supposed to be yours. Just think about something of yeah. using a check cash in place. Well, I've gotten paid paid for these hours that I've worked, that I've put in, and yet for the the service of getting cash, because I don't have a bank account, I have to forfeit some of that cash over to this entity. Right. And that's what's so unfair. And New York City is um, has a lot of need. Uh, roughly one in nine New York City households is unbanked. One in four is underbanked. And one in three is either unbanked or underbanked. So it's a lot of people. And uh, the truth is, it's, it's, it's really dragging down our economy. Because again, predatory, predatory practices and predatory lenders are slicing our, our paychecks and taking a certain percentage out of every single one of them every time we need to do something with our money, our hard-earned money. So we want to make sure that um, every 
person in, in our state and in our country has access to a basic bank account. Yeah. So I, I want to highlight something that you mentioned um, in, in your lead up that uh, most folks, I don't think, uh, know, is that we actually used to do this, <laughs> that there used to be a postal savings system. It, yeah. For years and years and years, we had it. Um, postal banking was one of America's most successful, successful experiment in financial inclusion. It existed in our country from 1911 to 1966. So it was really central in recovering from the Depression and World War One and World War II. It was it was what allowed people to have access to banking. So I think it's a perfect solution for this time. It's one that really mattered, uh, and it was almost going to be the alternative to federal deposit insurance. Um, uh, but it, it ultimately um, other policy ideas won out. Yeah. Yeah. So specifically, some of the things, some of the services that you mentioned, the small dollar checking accounts, savings account, small dollar loans that would be low interest or micro loans, which have been micro loans have been successful in economies um, across the world um, in being able to invest a small amount of loans, something that we may think is insignificant because we are banked, because we have a, you know, a job and insurance and things of that nature we take for granted that giving a loan of 5000 to a micro business or a small business, how significant that could be? Oh, it could be transformative. Uh, and even a loan of $500. Like imagine how many families, when there's an emergency, do not have $500 in savings to pay for it. A, a, a sick child, a medicine that they had to purchase. Um, a, a treatment, um, new shoes for a sports team that the kid wants to play on. Like those are things that are impediments for families every day. And if you could take out a small, low interest loan of even $500 on any given week that you are short of money and need it for something really important, uh, 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 fixing a car, the car you need to get to work. Um, so many people are harmed because they don't have even $500 of savings. So having the micro loans for businesses, but also for individuals can make the difference between surviving a traumatic event and not. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about this current conversation about rent relief and support for um, individual homeowners or small uh, property owners. <clears throat> and there was this conversation online about how much rent is and the ability to afford it. And if, oh, if your rent is only $500, you should be able to afford it. And it made me think of, I went to Hofstra and um, I remember my first apartment off campus, it was $330 a month. And I had a job, I was, I had um, a, one job and then a part-time job and going to school at the same time. And I found it so difficult to pay that $330 with all, like as a student yeah. at that time. And so, you know, it makes you think, I hope people understand that it doesn't matter the dollar amount. If you have other things that you need to cover, if that $330 might as well have been $3,000 to me at that point. Right. Cause if you don't have it, you don't have it. And, and that's the reality for people. Yeah. So what is, what is preventing this from happening? What are, what um, is standing in the way of us being able to provide this service to millions of Americans who find themselves needing this type of service? 
I think our biggest impediment is the greed and corruption in Washington. I think the fact that payday lenders spend millions of dollars in campaign contributions, uh, that the current banking system, again, writes the laws here in Washington because they hire millions of law, they hire millions of dollars worth of lobbying to make sure their voices are heard. So it's really the corruption in Washington that stands in the way. And so I'm working on publicly funded elections to get money out of politics first and foremost. Um, but I think this moment we're in may be the moment it takes to get postal banking done just because so many people are suffering. And this is such a simple solution. We used postal banking during the Great Depression is how Roosevelt actually uh, paid for the Treasury actually sold the Treasury bonds that he needed to sell to pay off the budget deficit because of the Depression. Um, it was used in World War II uh, straight to the 1960s. So it was part of the rebuilding of America after two world wars. And this coronavirus epidemic is going to crush us. And it's harming our economy in ways we can't even fully fathom. And we're going to need every resource available to rebuild this country. And why not make this be part of it? So we might have a strong argument right now that this is the right solution for this moment. Yeah. You know, one of the phrases I think that um, uh, perfectly captures the market and the economic reality that we find ourselves in is predatory capitalism. Um, and one that mm -hmm. which is a building a system that is strictly focused on what can I, how can I squeeze the maximum profits no matter the results to any other, you know, to any, uh, anyone else, um, how can I increase my wealth without thinking about those things? And just in thinking, reading some of the critics about setting up this type of system and it's like, oh, well, the market should drive itself. It was like, well, then it should be no problem for us to set up this alternative then. <laughs> because if the market would would, would uh, uh, work itself out, then having this system, having this system as an alternate for people who do not qualify for, quote, traditional banking, this shouldn't be a problem, should it? I don't think it should. I think this is the kind of solution that solves problems. And um, most of the big banks in America today don't serve these populations. And they're required to by law, but they don't. They just don't. So they shouldn't be opposing it. It actually will work. It will create economic growth. And it'll help more entrepreneurs and families invest in the economy. Yeah. Now, lastly, given the entirety of the situation that is facing the United States Postal Service at this point, I'm always, um, again, you know, very supportive. Um, and the um, people don't generally understand the additional um, barriers that exist for the Postal Service in terms of it being, I guess, the 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 phrase they use is profitable, right? But there's also the misconception people think that um, the Postal Service uses taxpayer dollars when we don't. It's self-sufficient, isn't it? Nope. Nope. So if we did postal banking, it would raise $9 billion a year for the Postal Service. It would, in one fell swoop, make the Postal Service viable for the next 100 years. So we should do it because they need help now. We want them in place so we can have vote by mail, especially if COVID is with us in, no in November. Uh, we want to increase people's access to the ballot, not decrease. So this could be a solution to strengthening our elections and to giving more people access to banking. 
Well, Senator, thank you so very much for taking the time to chat with us about that. I do hope you come back later and talk about more of the amazing things that you're doing. And um, thank you so very much for fighting the good fight for those of us who you represent. Um, thank you so much. Thanks, Eljoy. God bless you. you Stay too. safe. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see your life was the only gift I ever need to be free? It's amazing. Thanks so much to Mac Julian and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand for joining us for this conversation. I hope you learned a little bit more about the unique financial circumstances surrounding the Postal Service, basically what laws have been and policies have been put in place that actually hampers them, and perhaps you are a convert to the idea of postal banking. In the meantime, you can listen to Mac and contact your senator and lend your voice to the issue, and make sure to visit sundaycivics.org to get all of the information on how you can support these efforts. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. And until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and well.